What I want to do in this last section is, uh, or session is, uh, something I think we. I'm pretty sure that I'm right that most churches, if not all churches, don't do well and, and, and don't do deliberatively. Uh, and that is to uh, look forward and identify uh, men who exhibit the gifts and Begin working with them to, to in a in a in a in a word groom them, prepare them, at least get them started to thinking about uh, possibility that maybe the Lord would use. I mean, since since I've had boys, I have a daughter and two sons. My sons are twenty five and twenty three now, and. Uh, Oh, 26 and 23. And from the, from the first, when we first found that we were having sons, Carol and I prayed that the Lord, uh, A, would save them, that he would, cause, he would cause his spirit to work in them, just as he did in the heart of John the baptizer, in the prophet I, uh, Jeremiah. And we know in both those cases that before they were born, saw the light of day in their mother's wombs. The Spirit of God had worked in their hearts so that from the earliest days they believed in Messiah. And, uh, and we see the product of their ministries. And so we prayed that. We prayed for a godly young woman, that God would bring them a godly young woman as we prayed for Sophie, a godly young man. And so far, two out of three ain't bad in the words of Meatloaf. So we're still waiting on that third one, Lord, for Ian. Uh, the third thing we prayed for our sons, well, well, for Sophie, we prayed for a godly young man who would, who would serve Christ church as an officer, if, if he willed, or just as a good, good member, faithful member. Uh, and my son-in-law, Eric, is... Is, is one of the finest deacons I know. Um, haven't said this to, to my son, Kaz, except through the years I've encouraged him and Ian to, to pray and ask the Lord if, if he might use them in the gospel ministry as a, as a teaching elder or as a ruling elder or as a deacon. And uh, I think we should pray for our young men that way. And then look around at other men and see what the, God, what the Lord's doing. Look, He's promised that He will always have His church on this earth. And if He's going to have His church on this earth, they, those churches will exist only if there are qualified men to serve as elders and deacons. Where there are no elders and deacons, there is no church. I know we live in an age where, well, you know, I'm just not really into denominations. We just get together at our house on Sunday and praise the Lord. Or recently, yes, I, 
I just, every Sunday, I open my Bible and any neighbors that want, they come and I just read the Bible and tell them what it says. That's church. No, it's not. That's just arrogance. I mean, the early church fathers were right. Where there is no bishop, there is no church. Because where there is a bishop, there is Christ. And they weren't meaning in a, an Episcopal sense. They were talking about the Word of God being proclaimed with authority of the, of the called man. And I would go on to say, where there is no bishop and no deacon. Because again, like I said last night, if, if you're not showing the gospel in word and in deed, if you're not meeting the need of the soul and the body, then you don't have a gospel. And if you don't have a gospel, or if you, I should say, if you don't have the gospel, you don't have a church. I mean, I don't know about Mark, Clifton, John, others here, but what I've said through the years is our church, the PCA, has had its highs and lows, and we've made bad decisions and compromised on issues or not carried through with what we believe and dealt with men who were astray in the proper manner. Uh, people said, well, you know, when are we going to leave? When are we going to go somewhere else? And I'm like, as long as there's, as long as the gospel, there's the church, because if there's the gospel, then there's the preaching of the word and the care of the bodies of the saints. And we'll work with all those other problems and we'll try our best. Yeah, I'll just say this because I know you all hear this if you're in the PCA. From time to time, we have our hiccups. And it's really easy. And I have some dear friends who have left the PCA over the last 20 years at different intervals when we've had our failure to really deal with creation definitively and then with the federal vision movement definitively and more recently many think we failed to deal with the homosexual you know same-sex attracted ministry question definitively and so churches have gone to other denominations and uh in every case those good friends have called and said okay here's what we're we're really don't you agree i said you know what in the 19th century, we had the evolution controversy in the Southern Church. Uh, they were, after eight years, finally able to oust James Woodrow, the troublemaker at Columbia Seminary, the evolutionist. And uh, he remained, though he could not teach in the seminary, and he had no desire to minister in the church, except as a supply pastor from here to there, he remained a minister in good standing. And men like Robert Louis Dabney and B.M. Palmer and John Lafayette Girardeau and Thomas Peck and other stalwarts of the faith didn't feel compelled to leave the church because there were evolutionists in it. To my knowledge, we have no evolutionists in the PCA. Even people who disagree with me on 
the origins of this universe and our globe. Um, we come to the 20th century, and my dear friend, Dr. Morton Smith and others, lived with women deacons and elders and ministers at different intervals for up to 20 years before the church restructured and enforced the executive committee which had all authority to tell presbyteries and churches what to do. They became Episcopal in effect in 1972 to 73. And at that point, Don Patterson, Morton Smith, etc., et al., they said, well, okay, we don't have a church anymore. So we need to go and start a church because this is not a church. And I think at that point they were right to do that. But they lived with some awful stuff up until then because they still believed the gospel was being preached and that the confession of faith was there for them to minister to the people. Um, the reason I bring that up is to say that in, in every case, we need to be looking for young men to be the next generation. Dabney said in 1897, when he wrote, uh, in an article he wrote for the 250th anniversary celebration that the American Presbyterian churches were having for the Westminster, the conclusion of the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechism, 1647 to 19, uh, or to 1897, he wrote an article called The Utility of the Confession. It's a longer title than that, but... In there, he says this, that every generation must own the confession of faith for themselves or we will cease to be a confessional church in, one, in the next generation. In other words, we can't just expect our, our children to accept it and we can't expect young men growing up in the church to be the next defenders of the faith without us nurturing them without us uh, grooming them without us working and encouraging them and so that's that's what this is about and i pretty much said five pages of of outline notes here in that little introduction but l let me just go through my main points and the first is you know be looking for the gifts and qualifications in men just observe pay attention you say well but they may not have them but they might get them okay now you've hit a nerve with me especially if we're talking about men your ages I read this earlier. I want to read it again. It's a tr trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's fine work. An overseer then must be dot, dot, dot. It does not say must look like he might perhaps. 
develop these gifts. I said this years ago in a conference, Bill Shishko, I mentioned him last night, was in the audience, and I'd never heard an OPC person shout amen before. <laughs> it caught me off guard. But Shishko shouted amen. And I said this, if a man does not possess the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, he is not an elder or a deacon. You don't choose men based on what they may become. You choose men who are what you're going to ordain them to. Spurgeon said something daft like this, which he misapplied, but he was right in what he said. He said, because, you know, he refused ordination, the laying on of hands. He said, just empty hands on empty heads. But he said, you can't put in a man what God hasn't put in a man. Well, he's right. And we try to do that. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people, particularly with the deacons, they, they see a young fella, you know, and he's, he grew up in the church, but he's kind of hanging around the edges. You know, just not really involved. He's got, he's got his career on, on full throttle, and he's, he's got girlfriends, or he's got a young wife and family, and, and, and so it just seems he doesn't quite have enough any time for the church. And some... some in, remarkably stupid person will say, you know what? I just think if, if, if we made him a deacon, he might get more involved. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not God knowing all things, but that ain't ever worked in the history of the church. That has never, ever worked will ordain them. See, that's, that's how, remember the deacon I told you about in the last session? His daddy thought. That's exactly, his daddy was, I found more out about this. His daddy was concerned that he was maybe not getting as involved in church as he should, maybe hanging out with some of the wrong people at college and, and around, and now in his work life. And if we made him a deacon, he'd, he'd feel like he He's, he's got a little more responsibility to the church. Well, he didn't. And he finally came around to his senses under the preaching of the Word and said, you know, I'm not a deacon, but I, I want to help. But I'm not a deacon. I don't have any aspiration to an office of the church. And I don't particularly meet some of the qualifications, but I, I'm a helper. So we look for men who already possess in some shape, form, or fashion those qualifications. And I'll tell you, that's not ridiculous to think of. I have a, a friend who's pastor to my older son, and he, in a conversation some time back, said, uh, have you ever, have you talked to, lately? My son. I said, well, yeah, talk to him all the time. He said, he's going to be a really good elder one day. He's only 26. I said, don't do that. You know, not now. He's 26. He said, no, no, no. But I'm telling you, I've been watching. And he's got all the qualifications. 
I'll have to say, I, I sometimes am not, I, I sometimes act more like a, he's from New York, I want to say this, I act sometimes more like a Yankee than a Southerner. And I'm going to give you an illustration of this. And I'm not proud of it, by the way. But let me illustrate it. We had a we had an exam committee meeting at our presbytery some time back, and when it's over, this guy was to be tra- he was look- hoping to be transferred from another presbytery into ours. We we denied it. So when we finished the exams, we went to our session, and I said, I have a motion to make, not to sustain his exam or approve his transfer. And there was a quick second, and somebody said, uh, Do you do you want to speak to this? I said. I don't have to. I think you all recognize that if that man were not already ordained, we would not ordain him. Why they did in another presbytery, we, we're not responsible, but we're responsible for guarding the church here. And I said, I'll just say one more thing. My three children, including my daughter, could give better exams than he did tonight. And that's a shame. And one of the men who's a Covenant College professor, he said, I believe they could, Dr. Wilborn. And I agree with you on this one. And we voted unanimously to deny his transfer. Then we had to explain to the local church why we thought he was not qualified for them. But my point in that is, this is not, this is not difficult. So again, back to what I said earlier to to Bruce and then to y'all, let's don't complicate this. And let's don't feel like we have to we have to make every everyone should be an officer. See, I grew up Baptist. And I want to tell you, if you're gonna if you're going to be of any use to Jesus, you've got to be a preacher. And so anybody that ever felt compelled in their hearts to serve the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as a Baptist has had to struggle with, well, I guess that means I've got to go to seminary and be a preacher. Or if it's a woman, I've got to be the next Lottie Moon and go to the mission field. They know nothing of the Christian vocation generally. And I'm not being critical. That's just the way it is in particularly Southern Baptist life. But we don't believe that way. We believe that there's such a thing as a Christian vocation. Everyone, what's the fourth vow? Do you promise to support the worship and the work to the best of your ability? That's for everybody. So let's don't feel like, okay, Well, he's a man of a certain age. He needs to be a a deacon. He needs to be an elder. But on the other hand, we should look and observe because God gifts, he gives gifts to men. Ephesians chapter 4. And let's don't wait till they're 50. I look around and I see sessions and I'm like, surely God has a 45-year-old man in this church that's qualified. I'm not talking about you, but some places I go. You know, you don't have to be over 60 to be an elder. And you don't have to graduate from being a deacon to an elder when you turn 60. 
or 45 or whatever that age is that churches pick out of the blue. So let's look for the qualifications. Let's observe. And they're there for us. It's not a mystery. Second, then, okay, how do we, how do we discern uh, the gifts? How do we discover these in men? And one is reflection and counsel. You know, the Bible calls us very often to, to, to remember and to reflect upon things. But not just re- reflect upon the past things, but to reflect upon what God's doing now and what He's going to do. And so, I mean, verses call us to this uh, quite often. And let's not forget Proverbs 11, where there is no guidance, the people fall. But in abundance of counselors, there's victory. And we as elders, particularly as elders, but deacons too, we don't give enough guidance to men. We don't call them to consider their, 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 their vocation. Not just in the church, but everywhere. Um, testing and developing. There's an overlap here with the previous, reflecting on men's gifts and, and talking to them. But uh, just giving men responsibilities and observe their joy or their lack of joy as they, as they do things around the church. And as they do things with, with people, the, you know, the deacon assistant on the male side is a wonderful way to do this. We don't speak to this in the qualifications of the elder. Uh, I think we should. I think we should have an elder assistant program too. And you don't have to have, that doesn't have to be formal. But that's just as simple as the pastors, the elders, just uh, grabbing, a, grabbing a, a man that they're seeing really loves the Word, back to the first thing last night, has a heart, loves the truth, loves the Word, he's got his Bible open, he's reading, he's coming to the Bible studies, he just loves God's Word, and he loves people. He likes hanging out. You know what somebody told me recently? They'd visited our church several times from a Baptist church. And uh, on a Sunday evening, I said, it's, it's good to have you all again. They said, well, it's good to be here. And I said, so do you have any questions that uh, haven't been answered these three or four weeks you've been here worshiping with us? And, and, and he said, not really a question, but an observation. I said, Oh, you know, I was like, uh uh-oh. I thought we were going to be those frozen chosen. But he said, uh, y'all really seem to like each other. He said, we've observed on Sunday morning, we have a hard time getting away from y'all. And on Sunday night, look at this. People are still all over the place just talking. And when we go outside, there's going to be that whole hillside and playground over there with young families and children just talking and playing, and we don't do that at our church. 
Everybody goes straight to lunch on Sunday morning. That's because they're Baptists, so they got to they got to beat each other to Shoney's, you know. <laughs> I know we got some Baptists. I'm picking on you a little bit, not much, but uh, you know, grab those men, deacons. You don't have to have the session's approval to, you know, grab somebody and say, "Hey, come on, I need you to help me with something." And elders. You know, grab somebody and say, hey, you know what? I got to go visit somebody. Or we got somebody in the hospital or we've got an older member in the nursing home. Uh, I want you to come visit with me. You've never met. I, we've got some people like that that some of our younger people have never met. And so, you know, it's a great, great way to. And then you start observing. You know, how, how did they, you know, did they back out of the nursing home door or, I'm sorry, health care facility door or just stand over in the corner and hold their nose the whole time. You know, that's probably okay. A pretty good indication they're not called. But, uh, you know, it's, I'm, this is not brain surgery. It's just observing the gifts of God in people. And by the way, it's okay if they're not, if, if you end up saying, well, no, but hey, you know what? There's something else for them to do. Because we all have places. Um, that gets me back to one of the things I'm going to touch on tomorrow morning is sermons on communion of saints uh, from Hebrews chapter 10. And that wonderful verse I mentioned more than once last night, they were to consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. And I remind our guys often, notice it starts with consider. I mean, you've got to give some thought to this. You know, don't just go, okay, today, first guy that I see is going to the nursing home with me. You know, consider it. Give thought to it. Observe. Then move forward. Um, let's see, what else do I want to talk about here and then leave a little time? Uh, the call to the office. Let me just remind you about the call. I had somebody at a church just in the last couple of years. I talked about the call to the ministry and the call to, call to the offices. And he said, you know, I don't, I felt very convicted. I do not think I'd ever thought about my role as an elder as a calling from God like yours is. I was flummoxed. I was just, how could you be an elder and have never considered? But then I've heard worse things than that, guys. A son of our church, late 60s, I do a thing called the pastor's class every other Thursday. And this was before COVID. I walked into the room. He was sitting there. And uh, I said, hello. He said, hey. And he said, uh, uh, I said, well, let's, let's, good to see everybody. Let's get started. Uh, and uh, we're always reading something, and then I kind of lead a discussion and parse it out. And he said, before we get started, I want to be sure I understood something you said Sunday. I said, okay, go, Robert. He said, 
Did I understand you to say that gospel and good news are the same thing? I said, yeah. <clears throat> His father was one of the, by all accounts, I never met him, but from people there that knew him, served with him on the session. He was the, one of the finest de uh, elders in the PCA, godly man, uh, regional FBI director. Uh, I did know the wife, the mother, same thing goes. I said, yeah. I thought, there was, I thought he was going to yank me around a little bit with this, you know. He said, so gospel equals Jesus saves and good news equals Jesus saves. I said, right. He said, why have I never heard that before? I said, well, I got a sneaky suspicion you've heard it. You just weren't listening. And so I laughed and we moved on. But I thought, I've thought much since then. If he could have lived 60 years, because he'd been there in that church 60 years, and that just finally clicked, then okay, an elder could miss the point that you have to be called to this office. And what is a calling? And that's what I want to just close with. First, we talk about the internal call. That's that still small voice of the Lord, you know, that just gives you this, this hunger and thirst and this desire. What Paul says to Timothy, if a man aspires, if he has this desire for the office. Now I'm going to tell you, and this is just for comparison, I had, uh, over the course of teaching full-time for 10 years at Greenville Seminary, three young men going through my course on Presbyterian history. When I would get to Thomas Cartwright, who taught at Cambridge, and I would give his six principles of Presbyterianism that he came to from the book of Acts, one of them is that no man shall take up the call of the ministry purely on the basis of his own conscience or his own calling. Had Over the course of 10 years, three men came later and left the seminary or finished with a master's degree instead of an MDiv degree and said, you know what? I'm here based on my call, not the call of the church. My granny always said, you're going to be a minister one day. And I just love my granny and believe my granny. Seriously. I mean, I'm, this is not a made-up story, one of them said. He had an internal call, but it was misguided. The church didn't confirm it. And he was there on his own. No church said, yep, we're with you. Now, unfortunately, the seminary let him come anyway, and that was an exception to the rule for Greenville. But he went on to finish a Master's of Arts in Biblical Studies, and, and last I heard was a good elder in a, in a church. But he realized, yeah, I'm not called to the gospel ministry. There's that internal call, that sense of this, this, is, this is what God wants me to do. But then you want that... that uh, 
that subjective call, and it can be because grannies can be pretty persuasive. Right? You know, good friends. Oh, here's, here's one for you. I had a phone call from a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary. This was 20 years ago when I was about three years into teaching at the seminary. And he said, I got a question. Are y'all seeing a lot of this? Young guys go to university. They, they, they get involved in RUF or some other campus ministry. And they finish college and they don't get a job right away. And the campus minister says, hey, you know what? Maybe, have you considered going to seminary? You know, you love coming to Bible study. You love reading God's Word. You love, you love. You ought to go to seminary. So they don't have a job. Why not? They go to seminary. They come to seminary. Three or four years later, they graduated. Now they're four years removed from, a, from their degree which makes their degree basically useless. And so what are they going to do? And the way this professor friend of mine put it, he said, so we're ending up with men come, slipping through the back door because they got nothing else to do. And because some well-meaning campus minister suggested they go to seminary. And because presbyteries generally will slap approval on anyone with a seminary degree, it's, it's an easy move. And now we've got men, in, he said, in my opinion, without a proper calling, serving in churches. That's back to what I said earlier about so many men ordained and we have so few churches. Uh, now I'm not saying that God can't use grannies or RUL for camp, other campus ministers because they may see things in a man, but we're also seeing that it's more of a general, well, you know, you got no job, why not go to seminary? And, um, and in that whole process, there's, there's a subjectivity and there's not an objectivity, which is the recognition of the church. And that's what I was talking about earlier. We need to be recognizing in men whether it's men to go on to seminary or men to serve as elders or men to serve as deacons. And then you've got churches saying, you know, what you have, what you're sensing in your heart, that subjective call that you're talking about, that you've just always, you've thought for a while, maybe God wants you to serve as a deacon, serve as an elder. Well, we see that. We're affirming that. And there's the, and this is where, this is where people leave out another step in the call. It's not a legitimate call then until, in the context of the local church, the people and the elders affirm what the minister or the elders are observing and what this individual is sensing. So there's that check and balance that God's put into this process of the internal and the external and then the, what I call the third kernel, which is just the, okay, the church recognizes it, and now the presbytery recognizes it, or the session recognizes it. And then that helps us recognize that, okay, this, this is a legitimate call. 
I would recommend that you read because there, are, everyone in here has m more than one calling. If you've never read Paul Helms' book, and it's just called The Callings. It's a little paperback, Banner of Truth published it years ago. They keep it in print. He works through, you know, Ryan. He's called to be an elder. He's called to be a husband. He's called to be a father. He's called to be a... What did you tell me? What's your vocation? Yeah. Publisher. That's a vocation. That's a calling. You know, we're so into... What's your job? And people work jobs, like I said, just waiting for the weekend, waiting for retirement, instead of it's a calling. And so this all bundles up together of, of helping our young men particularly, but young ladies as well, to discern their callings in life so that we don't just have people working. That's a miserable way to live. It's just going to, going to work. Oh, I'll be off from work soon. Oh, it'll be the weekend sooner, not soon enough. Oh, retirement. Well, no, probably not, because, you know, hadn't been working. Um, anyway, the internal call, the external call, and then the third internal call, as I, as I call it. Well, that's leaving you with a considerable onus of of not just doing what the duties that are spelled out in the BCO in chapter 8 and chapter 9 are, but also every, every day, every Lord's Day, keeping your eyes open and observing people. And, and being, again, back to what we started uh, uh, the second session last night, being with people and talking with people and observing their gifts. He's in his second career, Chuck, I'm pointing at. We have a gentleman in our church that worked at Oak Ridge at, no, at Y-12 National Security Complex until he was 50 years old and hated it. Made good money, but just didn't care for it at all. But that's the job he got out of college. He had a daughter, I think, still in college. He and his wife prayed and prayed. And, and she said, well, sweetheart, I, you know, you're just miserable. You know, what would you like to do? Well, I'd like to be an accountant. Now, first time I heard this story, I had serious doubts about this man's sanity. <laughs> <laughs> that just, any accountants in here? I love you, but you're weird. Um, <laughs> I just, that, that's not me. He went back to the University of Tennessee. That's that other UT that's not really. And, and I'm not just saying that because I'm in Texas. I'm saying it because I live there. But uh, he went back to the University of Tennessee, uh, got a degree, got his CPA, and just he and his partner just sold out for a lucrative amount of money on his 72nd birthday or something and his 
one of our treasurers, loves to serve the church. His wife serves the church. And he's been happy as punch for 25 years of doing accounting work. And I use him for an example a lot. See, that first thing, working in that lab setting, was not his calling. But working with numbers, helping people with their taxes, helping physicians. He was largely, they had a practice that, that took care of uh, medical practices and their financial bookkeeping. And he loved it. And in God's providence, I'll tell you this. I know we're over the noon, but I'm going to tell you this. About a, two years before they sold the practice, he was diagnosed with colon cancer. And his doctor said, okay, here's what we're going to do. This is the surgery need. And uh, it's pretty radical stuff. He said, well, let me pray about it. He was uh, going on with his work. He went from Oak Ridge to Knoxville one day to one of the doctors that he was the accountant for. And he was there working on things. And the, uh, the doctor who was a uh, gastroenterologist said, oh, hey, how are you? He said, well, I'm all right. He said, What's wrong? What's up? He said, well, I'll tell you. He said, so I stepped back and I told him. He said, hmm, have your doctor send, send, send everything over. I want to look at it. He sent it over. He said, you don't need that surgery. I want to, would you go to Sloan Kettering if, if, if I can get you in this week? And he said, I guess. Before he left that office, his doctor friend, his employer, had called a friend at Sloan Kettering in New York, and he flew on that. That was on Tuesday or Wednesday. On Friday, he and Miss Martha were flying to New York City to see this doctor, and he had forwarded all the stuff to him. He did more tests. This doctor treated him over a over a. 18-month period, and he's been cancer-free for over five years. He flies up there every six months for a checkup and blood work, and he's perfectly healthy and living. But see, if he hadn't have been following his calling, now God will take care of us even if we're goofy. Right? God's just good that way. But because he was following his calling, his calling put him in the right place with the right doctor instead of having a radical colonectomy, whatever that would be. Colonoscopy is where they check you out. But the colon... Yeah, it's colonectomy. And, uh, and he didn't need it. And he's much better off now than he would have been. So that's just an aside. That's just... Uh, um, that's just gravy on the story. But check out Paul Helm, The Callings. It's a great book. We did it for our adult Sunday school class and with our youth Sunday school class as well uh, just a few years ago. Okay, questions? This might be out of left field. Or maybe philosophical, but for the 
did the twelve apostles have a true calling? Can that be conjectured? Yes. And I think we can, you know, if you're talking in the internal sense, that one's tough for us to discern because we don't have information on that. But I think we can say yes because Christ then called them and that substantiates that they were his men. Now, hmm? that's right. Now, then you do have the complicating factor of Judas. Um, and there, uh, you just have to say this. Here's where we back up and say, okay, but that was that was that was like the blind man, the blind young man that had been blind since birth. Who sinned? His parents, or did he sin? And Christ said, no. But we we decreed this, the Father and I and the Spirit. We designed it this way. It ha- in this case, it has nothing to do with sin. It has to do with having him right here at this time for me to do what I'm about to do. And I think Judas is in that same category. And even uh, to different degrees, even of the Peter and Thomas, you know, they had their oh, yeah. variations. Yeah, and, and that you have a call, a legitimate call, doesn't mean everything will just be hunky-dory and easy. We've already talked about all that. But it, it is the call that will sustain you through the difficulties. Because if you don't have a calling, if it, and they had different gifts. But if you don't have a calling, the hard times come and you'll just say, I, I think I'll do something different. You know, I'm not cut out for this. Well, you may think that even when you're legitimately called sometimes, particularly pastors do on Mondays. But uh, I don't on Mondays. It's Sunday nights. Uh, but that's why my deck is as large as it is with comfortable seating on it and the appropriate tables uh, so that I can go out and talk to the Lord through the trees and not, uh, not be bothered. I'm not as bad as Spurgeon. Spurgeon would go downstairs and throw up after he preached. He felt so inadequate in having preached the Word. But uh, I've never done that, but I've, I've understood Spurgeon on that. Anybody else? All right. Thanks, y'all. It's been good to be with you. Hope it's been good for your hearts and minds as well. Can I pray for you? Yeah, please do. Lord, thank you so much for these men and for Dixie. We, uh, we pray that you might bless them in all their callings, particularly in relation to the church. Uh, you love your bride, and you have given good gifts to your bride, and these men are some of those gifts. Even those who aren't officers, they're serving to the best of their ability, supporting the worship and work of the church. And so, uh, in, in that sense, you've given us, given us all to your church and your church to us. We thank you and ask now that you bless our time that we've spent together uh, to make your church more beautiful. 
We pray in Christ's name. Amen.